Hi, and welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast, entering week seven of the NFL season. I'm Mark Simon, along with SIS VP of Football, Matt Manicharian. Cheers, mate. And our lead football analyst, Alex Figderman. Aloha. Each of the last 10 Super Bowl champs has started four and two or better. There are currently 11 teams that fit that descriptor. The Chiefs don't, which you talked about last week. We'll be talking about a bunch of those teams later in the show. But first, let's talk the total points power rankings. These are the top teams in the NFL as ranked by their accumulated number of total points, which is our flagship stat. They are, in order, Cardinals, Rams, Bucks at three, Cowboys four, Raiders, Bills. Those are your top six in the SIS power rankings. Cardinals on top, Rams two. Top three are bunched pretty close together. It starts to spread out a little bit after that. So Cardinals, Rams, Bucks, all very close. The top offenses in the NFL by our total points rankings, the Bucks, the Cowboys, and the Rams. And the top defenses, the Cardinals, the Rams, the Bills, and the Raiders. Now note that you heard the Rams in both top offense and top defense. The top four teams in our overall power rankings, Cardinals, Rams, Bucks, Cowboys, all in the NFC. Matt, how do you view that? So when I look at, you know, across the the total points rankings, I think it kind of matches what you see with the standings. You've got five teams in the NFC with at least five wins. So you've got some real like cream of the crop teams, and then you've got no four win teams. And then it, it gets a little more crowded before you get to the, you know, the real bottom feeders, the Lions. In the AFC, meanwhile, there's a lot of teams that are competitive in the playoff race, right? You've got 10 teams with at least three wins there. You've got a glut of teams with four wins and just one five-win team, no undefeated teams. Now, you also have four one-win teams. You've got the Jets, the Dolphins, the Texans, and the Jaguars kind of bringing up the rear in the AFC. So when you look at, I think, the texture of each of the conferences, what we see from, from the ranks here kind of matches what we see on the super high end in the NFC versus more of a competitive kind of like 10-team, 12-team field in the AFC. And what you also kind of see there, as you mentioned, the the worst teams in each conference, on the AFC side, a pair of teams each in the AFC South and the AFC East. So the Bills there at the bottom of the top six, that schedule is going to help them out a little bit and just sort of getting those, those extra couple wins that other teams in other divisions are going to have a harder time getting to, thinking of the AFC West, for example. Again, the top three teams, Cardinals, Rams, Bucks in our power rankings. The most interesting thing from week six involved one of the teams in the top six. It was the last play of week six. The Bills down three to the Titans in the final seconds. They get a fourth and one from the Tennessee three. And rather than kick the field goal to tie and play for overtime, they go for it. I want to start with this. Let's start by walking through what I would call the math of the moment. Alex, can you take us through what our win probability data shows us about that moment of the game? Yeah. So essentially, if they go for it there, we're considering it virtually a 50-50 game at that point if they if they go for it. And that considers basically the odds of making it versus the odds of missing it and essentially losing the game. And they had only a 42% chance of winning if they did kick it. So that's essentially taking into account the relatively small risk of missing the kick, but also the uncertainty of overtime. You know, if you, if you get the coin toss and, and it goes to the other team and they score a touchdown right off, you don't even get a chance to play. Our model does not bring team quality into it, but obviously there would be a little bit of a benefit to the Bills in overtime for being the better team heading in, although we would consider that a relatively small advantage. With fourth and one attempt near the goal line, the odds are of making it are around 57%. We actually have that as a little bit of a lower number than you would get for a fourth and one at some other point on the field. Everything gets a little bit more compressed. 
And the thing I, I found the most interesting about this move is just that in the past, going for it in that kind of spot where you're essentially going for it and saying, I'm going to win or lose on this play, that's kind of the move that you see more from underdogs trying to sort of take variance into their own hands. Buffalo being the, the favorite here and making that call is more reflective of just how teams are viewing that kind of situation differently now. Alex, I think you're being too friendly to the caveman here. This was a no-brainer, absolute slam dunk. You have to go for this every time. Otherwise, you're doing your opponent a favor. You've got Josh Allen on a quarterback sneak. That's better than a 50% proposition. I don't care what it is, you know, based on what we would expect generally. You know, a criticism of fourth down decision-making models that drives me nuts is when people say, don't just do what the analytics says. You have to take into account the context. And The entire point of creating these models is not to just look at a piece of paper and do what it says, even though sometimes the announcers would lead you to believe that. The point of these models is to understand what they are taking into account and what they aren't taking into account, and then to use that to make the best possible decision. So when you talk about a situation where you've got Josh Allen, where it's less than one yard to go, you've got an opportunity to win the game right here. It's it's a much better than than a 50-50 shot of, of making that play and getting the touchdown. Just an, it's an absolute no brainer for me. This is just one of those situations where we can go back and forth. But at the end of the day, you know, when you really look at the math and the chances of making that play versus missing it, I know he missed it here. We could play the results all day. It was an absolute no brainer. I will say that, that the odds there, I mean, just comparing, you know, the win probability in each case, even ignoring any of the specific factors that contribute in this particular circumstance, our model did have it as like a seven to 8% advantage to going for it. So even before you consider any of these factors that probably do lean you in favor of the bills in that case, it was still a pretty solid go in that spot. And I want to hear the old school guy that can explain to me how it's more likely that you win the 50-50 proposition of overtime than you get into the end zone there. It's it's just not like let's let's move on. So actually, just play a hypothetical with me here. If you have, let's say, you don't have Josh Allen. Let's say you had the worst quarterback in the NFL in terms of skill at going on fourth and one. Is it worth the gamble? Yeah, because you still got Jacoby Brissett on your bench. So <laughs> bring him out there. I like how you cited someone for that. All right. So what have we seen from teams? Well, we've uh, this- seen two teams do that with Jacoby Brissett in the last couple of years. So. Okay, so this season has been somewhat of a special season as far as the go-for-it mentality has taken off in different situations, whether it's goal line, 50-yard line, or even from deep in your own end. Matt, put the coaching hat on. Is there a value in sending the message to your offense that you believe in them to the point where you would do that that maybe pays off six weeks from now that isn't even necessarily related to the actual in-the-moment decision? Right. It's a great question because we talked about the model and how that affects the decision, but also the decision is not just the decision. You've got a whole season to play out in front of this. And I think you're onto something there. It shows your team that you're not an idiot. And what better message can you send your team than that you're going to make the decisions that help them have the best chance of winning, that you're going to put them in the best chance to succeed. The reason why these fourth down decisions are changing this year and we're seeing it kind of right in front of our eyes isn't because the math suddenly changed. This math has been the math. It's because enough people are starting to understand it. So not only can you get away with it being, you know, quote unquote risky and, and not getting fired, it's getting to the point where the fans, the owners and the players on the team, the players on the team, these are smart guys. They understand that it helps them win. They say, I want to do the thing that gives me a higher probability to win. So they're beginning to demand it. Everybody likes winning, and I think it's 
the message that you're sending to your team is that you're going to do the right thing that's going to help them win games, get paid, all the things that they care about. If you look at other sports, and often with football, you hear football is light years behind baseball or basketball is light years behind baseball. This, I think, is somewhat of an inflection point where there's a bit of a catch up because that's what you saw in baseball, that you had something happen that resulted in a lot of teams now doing one thing, whether it's defensive shifting, whether it's batting order, whether it's pitching staff management, however they were doing it. This is the football equivalent of this. And I think in five to 10 years, this isn't even going to be a question. Like this will just be like somewhat of a routine thing where you'll have 28 of the 32 teams that are really set on doing it. You'll have a couple of old schoolers that won't necessarily do it. This is kind of that wave, the analytics wave that I think you're seeing in football. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Mark. Like uh, when you talk about shifting and the way that shifting became something a few teams experimented with, and it kind of goes and stops and starts, right? Like it's very nonlinear the way these things go over time, where you see a little bit of experimentation, maybe a step back. Somebody thinks, oh, we, we, we went too far with that. And then all of a sudden you look five years later and it's like, what the heck were we, what were we doing before? I think you're absolutely spot on when you talk about that, when you talk about two-point conversions, all that kind of stuff. I will say that the win probability discussion is a little bit unique relative to some of those baseball things, because in terms of the way that you evaluate your decisions and the way that you build a model to make those decisions, the win probability example is sort of iterates on itself where your our model is based on previous decisions. And as decisions change, the model needs to update. And so it'll be interesting to see how people adjust the model and how the recommendations will change as you know, if we're using four years or five years of data to inform that model, as, as a higher percentage of the plays that are included in that model are in this newer set of decisions and the newer way of thinking about things, then the new recommendations might be different. In the case of, of shifting or not shifting, these are sort of two separate populations. And so I can evaluate plays with a shift versus plays without a shift and compare them. But when we're trying to evaluate decision-making based on win probability, the previous decisions, which were suboptimal, are built into the model now. In five years, the decisions will have been more optimal, and therefore, the recommendations we might make in the future might change. More sample size. Matt, switching gears. Let's talk good humor here. What made you laugh in week six? Besides Alex trying to explain like really complicated concepts in the middle of a podcast... Jamal Adams had made me laugh the most. Like him introducing himself as best in the nation. I heard it might have been a tribute to a friend, but whatever it was, he does that whole thing. And then he loses the game. That isn't what made me laugh. What made me laugh is the way the ball bounced off his face mask when he could have won the game just by putting his hands up. The game was absolutely on a platter for him. He makes that interception close to the end of regulation. The game is over on that play. Instead of that, they go on to lose in overtime, catch the ball and win the game. And this, this Jonathan Cyprian type of safety who just can't cover and is there because of what he does physically in the box and run defense, there's just no place for that player in the NFL anymore. If you play safety, you have to be a cover player first. And that's really the beginning and the end of it. So he's, he's really a problem for them in terms of the amount that they've invested in him and how much he actually helps them win football games. All right, so that on the defensive side made you laugh. Alex, on the offensive side, I think Aaron Rodgers and uh, his take and his play was worth a chuckle, too. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to laugh at Aaron Rodgers' play, certainly. But yeah, the, the whole thing of him still owning the Bears, it's just sort of an odd time to make that claim. Like, he didn't exactly have an awesome performance. He didn't throw it a lot. He threw it shorter than he has in any other game this year. The thing that's that's kind of interesting, and this actually I saw in a Football Outsiders article this morning, that he has this kind of crazy split right now where he's in the top five in the NFL in independent quarterback rating and points earned per play from a clean pocket. And he's in the bottom five in both of those metrics when he's under pressure. So, and we know that that pressure performance, especially in small samples and stuff like that, that's the kind of thing that evens out over time. So Rogers having kind of an uneven start to the year, obviously that first game that was really bad, we should expect him to, to pick things up. But it seems sort of odd that he made this like, I own you comment when he didn't exactly have the best performance and he hasn't had like a super awesome performance so far this year. You mentioned that his performance under pressure versus when he's in that clean pocket Bakhtari, I think, started practicing again. I don't know when he'll be back on the field for the Packers, but that helps them. That helps two positions, bumping Jenkins back inside to left guard. So I think they could continue to see some some positive developments with that defense continuing to gel and getting healthier on offense. I mentioned the four and twos at the start of the show. Four and two or better. There are 11 teams in the NFL that currently have that record. And I want to ask about a couple of those teams with regards to their staying power. With the Cardinals, they beat the Browns last week. Baker Mayfield got hurt. Talk about that at another time. Kyler Murray threw for four touchdowns. The defense gave up a Hail Mary and one other score. What impresses you the most about Kyler Murray right now? It's his accuracy. Kyler Murray's accuracy has been unbelievable at all levels of the field. Yes, this is a team that throws a lot of bubble screens. Uh, You can pull it up on pro.sisdatahub.com and check the numbers for all the different routes and how much he's thrown each of them and how good he's been. But if we just look there at passes that were thrown beyond the sticks, right? So he's throwing it for at least first down yardage, the part of the field that the defense is is defending. He leads the NFL on these throws with an 82% on target rate. Not completion percentage, not, not anything like that. We're talking about hitting receivers in stride with room to do more damage after the catch down the field. 82% of the time on these throws past the sticks. And on these throws, his average throw depth is 16.8 yards downfield, right? So when we take away all that kind of screen game stuff that the Cardinals like to do, and we just focus on when he's throwing down the field, at 16.8 yard average throw depth leads the NFL with an 82% on target rate. Um, Really, really impressive there. And, and you can't talk about any quarterback without talking about the offensive line. They're one of eight teams with a pass block, a pass blown block rate under two point, under two percent. That helps your quarterback look good all the time when they're, when they're able to perform from a clean pocket, especially when he is what some have referred to as the mayor of Munchkinland. <laughs> so hang on. I want to stick with that pass blown block rate. And just for those that might not be familiar with our stats, can you just give us a very brief uh, overview about it? Yeah, so a blown block is not just looking at your pressure rate, right? We all know that quarterbacks have a lot to do with how often they're pressured or not pressured. It has to do with what sort of drop types they're taking, how long they like to hold the ball, all sorts of different stuff. In fact, we see that more athletic quarterbacks have higher pressure rates kind of because they're more athletic, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but it makes sense when you really start to think about it. They have the athleticism to do that and get themselves out of trouble. Blown blocks are just looking at when individual offensive linemen, running backs, tight ends are beaten by the defender that they're trying to block. It can happen on run plays or on pass plays. We're talking about an individual being beaten within two seconds, right? It's not not that you block the guy for four seconds and then he got through. This is a right-away sort of thing. One of the really special things that that we do at Sports Info Solutions. So when you talk about under 2%, 
you're talking about a, a really good job overall. I, obviously, like I said, that puts them in the top quarter of the league. As it relates to the Cardinals, I do also want to mention the defense. They've had a pretty good pass rush before, and obviously that that one game, one game where Chandler Jones had all the sacks in the world. But as a consequence, their their back end also has improved a lot. So they were bottom five in pass coverage points saved per play in 2020, top five so far in 2021. The you know pass rush contributes to that to some extent. The offense contributes to that, forces the opponent to, to do things that they might not have otherwise been comfortable with. Last year, they were a real heavy cover one team, played a lot of man coverage. Patrick Peterson leaves, they shift to more zone, more cover two, and the results have been encouraging so far. You know, I would, don't think that we expect them to be like an awesome secondary, but at least being representative with that kind of offense is, is a big deal. In, in, you know, as a replacement for Peterson to some extent, Byron Murphy already has three picks, a couple of dropped interceptions and some other passes defense. So he has a pretty good start to the year. You said a stat there that's a bit of a mouthful. Pass coverage points saved per play. Just explain what we're measuring there. It was a lot of P's, wasn't it? Yeah, so that's points saved is, is sort of the defensive side of our total points metric. So that's using every play every player and and our charting data to evaluate defensive players. That is not only evaluating them when they are targeted, it's also their ability to deter targets, the value of their pass deflections, passes defensed. In cases of like dropped interceptions, we'll evaluate those slightly differently. So we're taking all the different charting data points that we have and evaluating every single player who's in coverage and putting that on on an EPA basis. And a a much more comprehensive measure of defensive performance, certainly there. Bengals, four and two. Bengals have a couple of close wins this year. They have a couple of close losses. What have we learned about the Bengals through six games, Alex? I think the first thing that we learned is that they didn't need to take an offensive lineman in the top top of the draft to get better results. Easy there, Alex. (laughs) Remember who's on the podcast with you. That's fair. But they, at least so far, they've gotten you know better results in the offensive line. Obviously, to some extent, we just sort of expect that naturally, as, as bad as they were. They're in the top five in terms of lowest blown block rates, talking about blown block rates again in the NFL after you know they put their franchise quarterback in a, in a bit of a pickle last year. I'm also just kind of confident that Joe Burrow is just going to be a boom-bust kind of guy as a passer. In less than half of the attempts that he had, all of last year, he already has more touchdowns and also more interceptions than he did a year ago. So he sort of solidified his uh, big chaos energy. He has not performed very well on quick hitters. Only Davis Mills has a lowest po- lower points earned per play on one step drops this year. So on, on, the, on his quick hitter throws, he's not been particularly awesome. Although the weird thing is that the guys around him in, in that metric are Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, Justin Herbert. So maybe the, there's a little bit of like a, this guy is awesome, but also he has a little bit of, a, of trouble on these, these quick hitting plays. I don't really know what to make of that. Yeah, I joke around because to me, there's never a situation where you can go wrong building up front on the offensive line. But I got to give it to you so far. Jamar Chase has been absolutely superlative for, for the Bengals. He's a rookie of the year front runner. Probably, right? Is there anybody that's been playing better than him, especially offensively as a rookie? I knew you'd be all over him because he was your guy before the season started. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I, I argued with Nathan Cooper and John Todd about uh, the rankings of these guys. And when all the drop stuff happened in the preseason, I was like, do you guys remember when he led his team to a national championship <laughs> um, with the same quarterback that he's playing with now? But yeah, so he's been great. They hung pat. They hung really tough with the Packers, who I think are a great team. And they also made light work of the Lions, which is a nice sign when you actually just put those teams away that shouldn't be competing with you. 
but I'm still not ready to call them a contender. They have yet to play the Ravens or the Browns, so they got four games left with those two teams. That changes starting this Sunday. That'll be two of the next three weeks. They'll play those teams with a trap game sandwiched against the Jets in between. But yeah, going back to what Alex said, he's been right. Panay Sewell so far has not been great. 17 blown blocks and two holds so far this year, and especially he's struggled in the pass game. 16 of those 17 blown blocks in the pass game. So not great there, but obviously we've seen rookie offensive linemen. You know, it's it's a hard thing to come right in, especially when you didn't play at all last year. But we got to see. We got to see how they perform against the Ravens and the Browns. Those decision division games are going to be really what what separates if this is another same old Bengals team or if this is an actual contender. I'm still skeptical. So you just said that Penae Sewell with the 17 blown blocks, that's like three a game, right? Like that's, that's, not a, that's not an acceptable number. Not good. The most blown blocks we have across the league this year is Jalen Mayfield, who has 19 on 332 snaps. So not great. Eric Fisher second with 18 blown blocks so far this year. And then Penae Sewell's number three. One more team, the Raiders. John Gruden resigned. You're thinking maybe that's going to impact the team. Damn. Teddy Bridgewater threw three picks, got sacked five times. Vegas won handily. Alex, did you learn anything about the Raiders, G, that would make you feel good or bad as uh, if you were a Raiders fan? I don't know that that game in particular, I, I learned anything, but they definitely, over the course of the year, generated a lot of pressure. They had two other games this year that where they generated more pressure than that game against the Broncos, against the uh, Ravens in week one and the Bears in week five. The breakout star on the defensive line is, is Max Crosby, and he himself had three other games with more pressures than the five he had on Sunday. Another thing I guess I'd be pleased about is how much they've been able to succeed in sub-packages. So that's you know nickel and dime personnel. They've been in the top 10 in positive play percentage allowed in both nickel and dime, which is a pretty useful as a sort of proof of concept with the, the skill players that they'll have to face in the division. You know, the Broncos have a great receiving core. Obviously, the Chiefs are a problem. The Chargers, you know, with, with uh, Justin Herbert. So the, the, the kinds of teams they need to face, they need to be able to, to cover on the back end. And so being able to have those uh, lighter personnel and, and perform well in those is pretty important. They were pretty unsustainably bad on defense last year. They made a lot of changes. They're playing a lot better. I kind of think they're a little bit unsustainably good so far this year. Like I, 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 Max Crosby, I think is fantastic. I'd have a hard time believing that they would keep up even if they had a coherent coaching staff situation. At the end of the day, these sorts of games where you see the team that just lost their coach beat the Broncos who had started the season 3-0 and as well, these are why it's going to take a lot more for me to count out the Chiefs. Just in this division, the quality of the team, despite them kind of setting themselves back with three losses early in the year, Mahomes can throw a couple more picks before I really start to worry about that guy. I still want him on my team. So don't count out the Chiefs. Count on Jamar Chase. Panay Sewell got a little ways to go. The Raiders, we're still not, not sure about them. We enjoyed Aaron Rodgers this past week, even though it wasn't necessarily off of a big game. That, that kind of puts a bow on week six. So before we move into games for week seven, I want to tell you something cool going on at SIS. We're hiring. Want to work with Alex, Matt, and me? Go to sportsinfosolutions.com, click on careers, and read all about our cool opportunities. There's currently an opening for a football research associate. You'll work with your SIS teammates to collaborate on statistical models and do cutting-edge research on our many tools. Plus, much, much, much more. If you apply, tell us that you learned about the job on Off the Charts. Qualifications include understanding what Alex was talking about before. 
<laughs> that'll be on the inter- that'll be in the interview. Yes, like it. That'll be fun. If you yeah, that's that's fair. If you tell us that you're an off the charts listener, that probably adds ten minutes to your uh, interview conversation. Let's segue into games for week seven. The only game for week seven that pits two teams with winning records against each other is Ravens Bengals. We already talked about the Bengals. The Ravens have banked a good number of quality wins already. They're rolling through the AFC West. Matt, are there any caution flags here or are all Ravens things good things right now? You know, I think there are some caution flags, Uh, you know, despite their record and and how good they were, especially last week. This was a team that was really fortunate not to be 0-3, right? They started 0-1 and all of a sudden they're, they're winning one game on that ridiculous Justin Tucker field goal. They're winning another game with that comeback against the Chiefs. But now all of a sudden, they, they really rounded into form last week. They made Justin Herbert have one of those games that looked like the way he was processing when he was at Oregon. You know, as soon as I compliment the guy, it looks like he took that step back and had one of those games. We saw it from last, last year. I think he had a Belichick game where he was not on his game. He had a Brian Flores game where he was not great. This time it was Wink Martindale and company. They really had just an excellent performance. So this was a great game. I'd still like to see them string together more consistent performance because they're, they're honestly lucky to have the record that they have. Now, it's their fifth-ranked offense in terms of total points and their second-ranked special teams that have been their strengths. Lamar Jackson has been excellent enough. I almost said Lamar Miller because I heard he got signed by somebody, and I can't believe it. It's just <laughs> been stuck in my mind. But Lamar Jackson has been excellent enough to mask a lot of their deficiencies at running back because of the injuries and at wide receiver because they really just haven't had had the the players. You know, Mark Andrews is is their best receiver in their passing game so far. But statistically, Lamar's done enough. The blocking has been good enough. The questions on this team are on defense, and we're not familiar with saying that about about the Ravens. But that's that's really I think going to be the part of their team that is going to be. You know, you said is there a caution flag? That's where I'm. That's where I'm cautioning. All right, Alex, besides Lamar Jackson, what's the thing from this game with grade A watchability? I'm pretty interested to see how the Ravens passing game in terms of the receivers on the field looks. Hollywood Brown has had a pretty good start to the year, especially if you're willing to excuse the drops. And they recently added Rashad Bateman, their first round pick, who was our fourth ranked receiver in the football rookie handbook from this year. It was a weird game for them last week where the Ravens didn't air it out at all, especially compared to the the last few weeks. So maybe this week we'll get a little bit more of a shootout, a little bit more of a razzle-dazzle in the passing game. Titans Chiefs probably deserve top billing there. I actually moved it down to the number two game. The Chiefs did bounce back. They had 500 yards of total offense against an underperforming Washington team. The Titans now have a win against the Bills under their belts. We didn't really talk about that game from their perspective yet. Alex, your take on the Titans and the Chiefs. Obviously, Derrick Henry has been sort of exploding everyone's brains in terms of his performance both last year and this year, but the passing game hasn't quite gotten going. Part of that is is the injury situation. Julio Jones and A.J. Brown were supposed to be like a, a, a real dynamic duo, but both of them have played only like half the time each. There are some sort of extreme results that I wouldn't expect to continue. Tannehill has been sacked on one in five deep drops. And while obviously he has been pressured a lot to to justify that, that's sort of a crazy uh, sack conversion rate that I wouldn't expect to keep happening. Another thing that that probably would just take a deeper dive for me to understand a little bit more is the change in approach with not having Arthur Smith on the coaching staff anymore. They've used pre-snap motion a lot less than they did last year, and they've also been much less successful when they have used it. 
the Chiefs defense has actually had its share of troubles in general this year, but uh, in particular, when the offense has been using pre-snap motion, they're in the bottom five in EPA per play and positive percentage when the uh, offense uses motion pre-snap. So if Julio Jones can play and play a meaningful role in this game, this might not be as much of an issue. The Titans might be able to, to get things going just by having you know both Jones and Brown on the field. But the Titans do, do seem to have moved a little bit away from sort of scheme concept that might have helped them keep up with Kansas City. So motion pre-snap against the Chiefs defense, something with a high degree of watchability for this game. Matt, what else has a high watchability factor? I think that Alex just hit the nail on the head. This is watching how this offense has changed in terms of being without Arthur Smith now, right? You lose your star offensive coordinator who has gotten the most out of Derrick Henry, who fixed Ryan Tannehill, who got Jonu Smith paid, all this other kind of stuff. Is it because of the injuries to the wide receivers, right? A.J. Brown's been hurt. He's a huge, huge part of the passing game. Julio Jones has been hurt. He's really come in to fill and probably be an upgrade over the Corey Davis role. So is it because of those injuries that we haven't been able to see the usual things that we've, that we've come to expect from the Titans? Or is it something more than that? And have they abs- actually changed in some way? So when I'm looking forward to this game, I'm looking at playing the Chiefs defense and not just playing against a defense that struggled to see that you know they can help build some more positive momentum after this last game. But I'll be looking out for the process too. That the how they are achieving the success or failure that they have in this game, not just the whether or not they will. I'm really looking forward to to understanding, are they going to go back to that pre-snap motion? Are they going to go back to a lot of the concepts that have kind of served them well over the last few years? Because I think when Mike Vrabel gets to the bye and they really start analyzing themselves, these are the sorts of things that you look at. You look at these kind of numbers when, when you get to that point of the season. I think that they might find that this is an unsustainable formula with, with Derrick Henry, especially when it comes to overtaking those top teams in the league in a playoff run where you're doing it week after week after week. You might need to scale back the usage a little bit just to get him there. I know he's Derrick Henry and he's a freak and he never gets injured and all this other kind of stuff. But I think that when I'm watching this game, what I'm looking for is the schematics of what's going on with Tennessee. What are they doing on first and second down? What are they doing in terms of the pre-snap motion? and how they're deploying their offense, not just whether or not they're like everybody else and they can move the ball up and down the field on the Chiefs. Is this the most fun uh, game to watch this week just because of all the intrigue that you've, that you've run through? For me, probably not. Probably yeah. not. I, I'm going to say that I prefer a game that had one defense or another playing in it. There's just not enough defense in this game for me to get really excited about it. Personally, I'd be, I'd be surprised if, if Ryan Tannehill could keep up with uh, the likes of Patrick Mahomes. Let's move to another game, Eagles-Raiders. Matt, what's going to determine which Derek Carr we're going to see on Sunday? That is a great question. If I could answer that one, that would be like fortune-telling, right? Like, I don't know which Derek Carr we're going to see. He was very, very high on our list in terms of what he was doing on a total points-per-game basis earlier in the year. He sunk down to 13th. You know, that's still good, but it's not where he was, certainly. Right now, we're going through one of those cycles where Kirk Cousins is getting near the top of the list, and it seems like these two guys just tend to have those. They're good. They're not that good. I think it's going to take a few games to get a, beat, a better beat on what this offense is without John Gruden. I think it's kind of like a, a full blank clean slate in terms of what your tendencies are, what your identity is. We've really just got one game of it so far. There are obviously some good players on this offense, but we haven't seen consistency over time. I'm very curious to see what the rest of the season looks like. And to answer your question, 
your guess is as good as mine in terms of how, how we can how we can predict which what, what they're going to be doing. Alex, I know that you'll be watching this game because of a particular team that you like. Uh, what's the best watch within this game? I definitely like watching the the Eagles' interior defensive line, Javon Hargrave and Fletcher Cox. Uh, the Eagles probably don't win this game if those two guys don't have a big impact. The team as a whole has been second best in the league in, in pass rush points above average per play. So the distinction there between points saved and points above average is mostly just that volume doesn't matter in points above average. It's centered at zero. So they've been really good from a pass rush perspective just from the interior line. So that's three tech and in. The Raiders interior offensive linemen have been fine this year, but that's a pretty fearsome couple of players in the middle. And with Derek Carr being more aggressive downfield this year, they're going to need to hold up a little bit longer than they might have in, in previous seasons and let those plays develop. So that's going to be a big thing to watch in this game. One more game. Do a quick take on this one. Saints, Seahawks. Saints are coming off a bye. Seahawks are starting Geno Smith. I've said this before, impersonating a previous host. This is one of those games where it's like the Saints win probability is this with a win and this minus 20 with a loss. Alex, give us a quick breakdown of this one. So, yeah, Geno Smith is an interesting thing. I mentioned earlier the the weird splits with Aaron Rodgers. Geno Smith is an even more extreme split in a small sample. He's like at the top of the independent quarterback ranking, independent quarterback rating rankings when unpressured. And on the flip side, he's somehow managing a negative adjusted net yards per attempt when he's under pressure. So obviously that's like super extreme and we'd expect that to to move towards the middle. But even a sort of muffled version of that trend suggests that Gino is going to have trouble with pressure. The good thing is that the Saints don't really generate a lot of that. And so if if he's able to avoid getting himself flustered and stuff like that, they do have a shot. And especially with that those skill position players, they lead the league in broken and missed tackles per reception. So if they're able to make some plays after the catch and and give him as much help as as you know is reasonable to expect, they they have a good shot in here and and they are at home. But other other than that, it's going to be tough sledding. Yeah, I'm with you, Alex. Gino is going to be fun to watch. It's the most watchable thing. Gino has, has been high on that list for the last few weeks. For me, the most the most watchable thing in this one is Russell Wilson, though. Uh, not even the, the starting <laughs> quarterback for the Seahawks. It's the guy on the bench. He was basically out on the field spotting the ball for the Seahawks at the end of last week's game as they were trying to line up for that last second field goal attempt. He's literally on the field trying to direct the, the receiver to go back and spot the ball. And then he almost single-handedly won the game by winning the overtime coin toss. I've never seen a player that's not playing in the game go out and take the coin toss before. So, I mean, this guy's adding win probability without even playing on the field. <laughs> All right. Sorry. It's because you sent me those good uh, comedy recommendations, Mark. I'm, I'm still uh, riding high off of that uh, Neil Brennan three mics that, that you recommended. My, my real thing that I'm looking for in this one is, is Sean Payton coming off the bye against the Seahawks secondary that is suspect to say the least. We talked about Jamal Adams before. I'd really like to see Jameis Winston take the next step. I think this is a great opportunity coming off the bye against a weak secondary for Jameis to really uh, start to put together. I think that they've they've had the, the training wheels on a little bit in terms of the offense that they've run with Jameis Winston so far this year. He's got all kinds of ability. If you go back to Jameis Winston at Florida State, I saw him play a game against Pitt where he must have completed I think 26 out of 28 passes in the game, something ridiculous like that. And it was like the only incompletions were caught out of bounds. This is a guy with unbelievable ability. He certainly had his questionable decision-making issues over the course of his career. Not that he can't process, but that sometimes he makes bad decisions. 
I think that as Sean Payton has more time with him, I'm really excited to see what he can become. And I will be grabbing my popcorn and be zeroing in on, on Jameis Winston as I watch this game. To end the show, let's talk scouts versus stats and flip the roles a little bit here. We'll have Alex be the scout and Matt be the stat. We're going to have a little fun. Let's, let's talk who you like watching and listening to from a broadcast perspective, particularly as it relates to scouts and stats. Alex, who do you like when you listen from a scouting perspective? In a couple games this year, I've, I've seen Greg Olson in sort of get his, his feet wet as an announcer, and I've liked what I've heard so far. I think that he has that same kind of, you know, Tony Romo energy where he's, and not in terms of like predicting things that are going to happen, but just in terms of, of having a, a good energy about the game and explaining things in a way that, that people can follow along and can actually you sort of learn something about the inner workings of the game, especially from an offensive perspective. And he, not being a quarterback means that there's a slightly different angle that he comes at it from. I've just been a fan of, of what I've seen from him so far. Matt, and from the statistical perspective, who do you like? Unfortunately, we're not at a point where a lot with a lot of National Football League broadcasts where there's a really great person with a statistical or analytical eye that's really, I think, breaking things down on the level that I think they will be in a few years as, as kind of that hunger continues to grow. We get the scouts feed. Lewis Riddick on Monday Night Football is great. I'm thinking of the scouts feed with Bucky Brooks and Daniel Jeremiah, which is how I tend to consume my Thursday night football. A little, little hack there. If you go on Amazon Prime, you don't have to listen to the usual announcers. You can switch up that one. But really, from a stats perspective, I, I don't think there's a lot there. There's some of the people not doing games. You know, Mina Kimes does a phenomenal job. Seth Walder, people like that at ESPN that are that are trying to evangelize all of this. But when it comes down to it, what the statistics say, the best announcer is it's Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. They got the best ratings. They're the best. That's the best stat, right? I didn't want to cop out. I had to give you an answer at some point. Peyton and Eli, because the numbers speak for themselves. Metric up. This wraps up the Off the Charts episode for week seven. Check out the Sports Info Solutions blog and Sharp Football, where Alex wrote this week, for much more content, and the SIS Data Hub for all your statistical needs. For Matt, Alex, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Enjoy the football weekend, everyone. Stay safe and stay well. 